Repentance is just collapsing on Jesus. Repentance is simply just collapsing on Jesus. I learned that from one of my heroes, Jack Miller. His favorite definition of repentance was this. Collapse on Jesus. It doesn't even take energy to throw yourself on him. Isn't that good? It doesn't take any energy to collapse. You just cooperate with gravity. That's all that repentance is. It's spiritually cooperating with gravity. It doesn't take any energy whatsoever to collapse into the arms of Jesus. You just crumble. You melt. You fall. And he catches you. Now, that's not what I heard about repentance growing up in the church. What I heard a lot of was, you better promise to do better. You better stop it. But repentance is more than just turning away from sin. It's turning once again to Jesus. Repentance is not what most of us have heard our whole lives. Stop that right now. Most of us have heard that, right? Repentance is not stop that right now. Repentance is come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden. Matthew 11. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Today we're going to see what happened one time when the Corinthian church repented. They have a lot of issues, but they repented and handled the situation very well. We talked about it back in chapter 2. Paul will talk about it more today. And the Greek word that Paul uses here for repentance, that word is metanoia. It simply means to change one's mind. That's it. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of heart. It does not primarily mean a change of behavior. Repentance does not primarily mean a change in behavior. And that's very important to understand. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart that is not primarily a change of behavior. Now, that's probably not what you've heard about repentance if you grew up in the average Western evangelical church in America. But think it through. If repentance is primarily a change in behavior and not a change in heart, then you know where that leads to, right? Hypocrisy and legalism. You can change your behavior and not change your heart. You can stop doing things that you know are sin and yet still not have a change of heart. And so repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart that is not primarily a change of behavior. Yes, it will lead to a change in behavior. It should lead to a change in behavior. But repentance is primarily a change of mind. And so the change in behavior is what we would call the fruit of repentance. But it is not repentance itself. Don't mix those two up. The change, the transformation, the making things right that follow repentance, that is the fruit of repentance. And when a church repents, it is a beautiful thing. 
It's a beautiful thing in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord loves a repentant church. And God gives us one example of that beauty in our passage today. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, continuing our series, Neon Gospel, Corinthians volume 2. And so let's look at verse 8 and hear the word of the Lord. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that let, so I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So Paul sent his painful letter to the church in Corinth where he rebuked them. And then he began to wonder if he was too harsh in the letter. And at one point, he actually regretted sending the letter. But then he heard from his friend Titus how the church responded well, how they repented. And now Paul says, I don't regret sending it now. Paul rejoiced, not that they were grieved by his letter, but that they were grieved into repentance. But how can repentance be a beautiful, sweet thing if it involves grief? Well, the answer is, where are you basing your repentance As Tim Keller says, fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. We're mad at ourselves for messing up again. We let God down for the thousandth time, so surely he's had it with us. That's all based on the fear that God is fickle and will one day get so upset with you that he's just going to give up on you. But what about grief over sin? I mean, aren't you supposed to feel bad for your sin and sort of beat yourself up so that you don't do it again? Listen, beating yourself up repentance is not fun nor joyful is it? So how does grief over our sins play a role in what Tim Keller refers to as joy-based repentance? I mean, it is true, as we're going to see in our passage today, that repentance does involve grief, sorrow, a godly grief over sin. But it's a temporary grief because the end result is not death, but salvation without Regret. The, the end result is not to just stay wallowing in our sin. Kind of think of it this way. Think of it like you're on a road trip and you drive 10 miles the wrong way because maybe you're just really into that true crime podcast that you're listening to or you're, you really got into that song that you listened to that you loved in 1983 and you got wrapped up and you're 10 miles and you miss your exit, okay? Then what happens when you realize it? Grief, right? Ah, ugh, I missed my exit. You experience grief in that moment because you missed your exit. Now, please understand, I'm not comparing our sins against a holy God with us missing an exit, okay? But the idea is that there's that bit of sorrow and grief so that you then turn around. You turn around and you go back in the right direction. That's how grief works in repentance, The grief that is involved in repentance occurs when the Holy Spirit brings conviction and you realize that you've been rejecting God and you have been going your own way. 
But that's not the destination. Grief is not the final destination. The final destination is Jesus, your Savior, your first love. So grief for sin isn't a problem as long as it is a godly grief. Godly grief over your sin leads you to Jesus, not to a mirror to stare at yourself and not to a boxing ring to beat yourself up. Godly grief leads you to Jesus. All fear-based repentance puts most of the focus on you and how you failed instead of on Jesus and what he has accomplished for us in the gospel. Joy-based repentance puts the focus on Jesus and it makes us hate the sin, not just ourselves. Fear-based repentance, we hate ourselves. It's like, ah, oh, I did it again and I just hate myself. I don't really hate the sin, but gosh, I hate that I did it. Joy-based repentance puts the focus on Jesus so that we hate the sin because we've returned to our first love again. Now, of course, at the moment of repentance, the typical reaction is to put your head down in defeat and to start self-loathing and to be frustrated about how you have let God down and be frustrated with your lack of progress in the Christian faith. And before you know it, you are repenting, turning, but it's not a gospel-fueled, joy-based repentance. It's not a godly grief. And initially, it does feel right, doesn't it? Beating yourself up does feel right, doesn't it? It's like, that, I have to do this. I have to beat myself up. And so we begin to think things like, surely God needs to see that I'm upset, so I better wallow for a bit. God forbid that I should just jump straight to the gospel too soon. So I need to make sure God sees that I've learned my lesson. I better beat myself up just a little bit longer. I better stay in the corner in this time out for just a little bit longer. That's not godly grief. Godly grief leads to salvation, to Jesus. And that's what the Corinthians did. They experienced a joy-based repentance that caused them to hate sin and that eventually spread joy all through the church. Their grief over all the issues and drama and sin that were spreading in the church caused them to change their minds. And they decided to deal with the man in their congregation who was causing all this trouble. They felt a godly grief, a godly sorrow over what was happening in their church, which led to confession of sin and then which led to joy. Confession of sin led to joy. Think about that. And so Paul says in verse 9, you suffered no loss. So when they repented, they didn't lose anything, Paul says. So understand this, Grace. We win when we repent. We win when we repent and turn back to Jesus. We don't lose. We win when we just collapse on Jesus and come clean and confess sin. If we lose anything by repentance, then we lose selfishness 
and pride and the deeds of the flesh, but we do not lose, we gain. We gain Christ, we gain shalom, we gain peace. So don't hold on to your sin. David talked about this in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away. You can see it on people's faces sometimes. They're so bitter, they're so angry, holding on to their sin, and it just kind of decays them like, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank here. Good thing Pastor James has gone to Wildwood. Uh, oh, the Sith fighting Mace Windu, and he gets his face morphs. What's his name? Sid- yeah, Sidious. Darth Sidious, right? His face just totally changes in that moment. That's what holding on. I just lost my Star Wars card right there, by the way. <laughs> but it wasn't in my notes, but still. He has this moment where he just, you know, sends out those electrical things out of his fingers and just he melts down. That's what happens when we hold on to sin. And you can see it on people's faces. And if they keep holding on to bitterness and anger and rage inside, it will eat away at them. And usually it will cause health problems, which is why David said, when I held on to my sin, my bones wasted away. So don't hold on to your sins come out into the light walk in the light walk in the joy and the freedom of repentance listen taste the joy of repentance yes you heard me right taste the joy of repentance. That's exactly what happened at Corinth. They were grieved over the sin that was sweeping through their church family, so they changed their mind, they changed their hearts, and they said, we are not going to live in the dark anymore. We're going to deal with this situation. We're going to deal with the man who's causing all this drama. He's affecting all of us, and we're going to put a stop to it right now. Can't believe we let it go this long. And they didn't lose out on anything when they collapsed on Jesus. They won. And so do we when we repent. If anyone loses when we repent, it's the devil. But we win when we come clean. We'll look at verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There it is. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So Paul describes godly grief as leading to salvation without regret. And what he means is that godly sorrow brings about repentance, a change of mind that leads to salvation. In this case, the salvation and the well-being of this church family in Corinth. Those who repent and turn and collapse on Jesus and drag their darling sins, kicking and screaming drag them out into the light of the gospel, they have no regrets about repenting. They don't regret repenting and seeking restoration and reconciliation. And so the Corinthians had no regrets about seeking out healing in the church body, no regrets about confronting those who were causing division. And they had no regrets because it brought healing to the church. 
Paul describes what their, their repentance produced. All of the what's that Paul describes in verse 11, all of the what's that he lists here are the fruit of repentance. He says, what earnestness. This word means diligence or effort. The verb form of this is used in the Iwana verse, 2 Timothy 2.15, where it says, do your best or be diligent to present yourselves as one who is approved. The Corinthians were diligent to deal with their issues. They got on it. They didn't drag their feet. They didn't mosey. And then Paul says, what eagerness. Their eagerness to clear the air. Make sure things were right with Paul. And then he says, what indignation. Now, this could mean that they were angry at this man for causing all this division in the church body or mad at themselves for allowing it for so long. But also, I think they were angry at the devil who was trying to destroy their church. Listen, when there is division in a church, in a family, in some relationship, don't get mad at the people involved. Get mad at the devil. He's the one who's wanting to destroy. Let me remind you to come back tonight at 6 p.m. as we're going through our DVD series on spiritual warfare uh, with Chip Ingram. It's, It's great. I hope you can come out tonight. But don't get mad at the people who are involved when there's division and drama. If you're going to get mad, get mad at the devil. Then Paul says, what fear? They wanted to see a renewal of the fear of the Lord, this joyful trembling sweeping through the church body, this trusting awe restored and renewed. And then he says, what longing? They wanted to see Paul. After all, he was their founding pastor. That's the fruit of reconciliation. There's a desire to be together. And then he says, what zeal. They were passionate about this reconciliation. And then finally he says, what punishment. What he means is that they punished through church discipline those who were involved in causing all the drama. And that's what Paul told them in chapter 2. He says, now you need to restore this man and comfort this man who has caused all this drama. You all came together and said, you need to knock it off, dude. You're destroying the church. And they said, now you need to come alongside him and comfort him and reassure him. So those what's there in verse 11, that's what you're looking for following repentance. Those what's are the fruit of repentance. Now look at verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So the situation here again goes back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul mentioned the man who had offended him and was challenging his leadership and the church carried out church discipline on this man. And Paul says in verse 12, hey, the whole reason I wrote this painful letter to you was not to address the man who did the wrong, nor was it for my own ego and my own reputation since Paul was the one being wronged by this man. Paul says, I wrote the painful letter For your sake. Paul wasn't out to defend himself against this man who was slandering him. And, remarkably, he wasn't out to throw this man under the bus either. Paul wrote to them so that the church would be healthy. Again, not to clear his name, nor to get back at this man. He wrote the letter so that the church would be healthy 
because the glory of God was at stake in the church. So the fruit of repentance is forsaking sin and hating it. That's the negative aspect. The positive aspect of the fruit of repentance is making things right. It might involve, it's not just enough to say, well, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry I hurt you. That's not enough. Sometimes there's a positive aspect to it where you need to make things right now. Restitution needs to take place. You need to fix wrongs. Or in the case of the Corinthians here in this context, they needed to restore this brother who was causing so much division. And they needed to restore their relationship with Paul. And so repentance has at its heart restoration, not just clearing our name. But what do we typically do when there's relational conflict? Number one, what do we do? We want to clear our name, don't we? We want to justify ourselves. We feel the pressure to vindicate ourselves, and we want to make sure that everybody hears our side of the story. you got to hear my side. You've heard what they're saying. you can hear my side. we got to vindicate ourselves. When there's relational conflict, we want to clear our name. And then secondly, we often want to attack those who are attacking us. We want to get back at them. We want to make sure they get run over by the bus. But Paul shows us a better way. His concern is over how relational conflict will destroy the whole church. Now think about that. How often do we want to clear our name when something happens in our relationships? How often do we want to throw somebody under the bus? But Paul shows us that our main concern should be the health of the church body. Listen, when there are accusations and grumblings against the leadership of the church, and that's the specific context here in 2 Corinthians, it hurts the whole church and not just the leadership. When people grumble about the leadership of a church or someone who's spearheading some ministry, well, I don't like how they did this, they aren't just hurting the leadership, they're hurting and inflicting pain on the whole church body. And the reason that is, is because gossip and slander have a way of getting everywhere like glitter. Glitter just gets everywhere, doesn't it? There's glitter all over our house. At some point, you'll find a piece of glitter. In fact, the row that we sit on over there, as I set my Bible down, I saw little sparkly things. And I was like, my girls have been here because they love glitter. Glitter gets everywhere, doesn't it? The same thing is true with grumbling and mumbling and complaining and bitterness. It just spreads. And you could be innocently minding your own business, you know, and you go hang out with someone and they start grumbling and mumbling and complaining and they're bitter and angry and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, you're right. You're right about that. And it just gets everywhere. If someone starts gossiping or slandering or mumbling and grumbling and complaining, all of of that junk, all of that sin, let's call it what it is, all of that gets everywhere in the church like glitter. And that's the context here. But broadly speaking, any kind of division in a church hurts the entire church body, not just those directly involved. Listen, there's a better way. Trust the Lord in the situation. Let him vindicate you. Let him work in his church. Pray and repent. In most situations, 
most relational conflict, my guess is that all parties involved need to repent. All parties involved need to repent of something, I'm sure. I love what Jack Miller said once. He said, if you're like me, you have some repenting to do. Today, no matter what is going on in each one of our lives, I think we probably all have some repenting to do, don't we? But cheer up, y'all, because repentance is just collapsing on Jesus. If we've all got some repenting to do, don't let it get you down. Cheer up, because repentance just means you collapse once again into the arms of your merciful Savior. Repentance is just admitting that you are a mess and that you desperately need Jesus. Repentance is actually a return to sanity. Repentance actually clears the fog in our minds and in our hearts. Repentance gives us clear minds and and open hearts. The Corinthians' godly grief, Paul says, it produced an earnestness for Paul. It helped to melt their suspicions of of Paul. It helped clear away the fog in their affections so that they remembered how they felt about Paul before all the drama started. And it revealed to them, it was revealed to them by the Spirit in the sight of God. And so sometimes in relationships, a wedge comes between people that makes things foggy. And we forget how we felt about a person before all the drama started. But once there's a strain in the relationship, our hearts get foggy, don't they? We can't see clearly. We seem to forget that I once really cared about this person. And they go from being a friend to being an enemy. And Paul tells the Corinthians here that their repentance actually opened up their eyes to see, once again, how much they loved the apostle who planted their church. And all of that brought joy and comfort to Paul and company. Look at verse 13. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Here's what Paul is saying. And, and as a side note, we, we've seen through this letter, they're, they're struggling and, and turning on Paul, turning to the super apostles. But this is encouraging that this church has a lot of issues. And you can read about them in 1 Corinthians too. They have a lot of issues and yet you see the grace of God at work. They, they handled this situation with this man very well and they responded appropriately. It just gives encouragement that even if we have issues in our church, in our families, in our friendships, that God's still at work, and that issue isn't the main thing. The Spirit's like, no, I'm still working over here. We still got to work on that, but I'm moving here and here and here. It's just encouraging as I think about it. But here's what Paul is saying in this, these verses. A church that practices repentance restores joy to that church. The Corinthians repented, and it proved what Paul told Titus about this church. They lived up to their reputation. 
They welcomed Titus, and all of this caused Titus to be refreshed and to deepen his affection for this church, and then all of this caused Paul to be comforted and encouraged and to rejoice more and more. And what started it all? It was repentance. Imagine that. That means then that a church can actually repent their way to renewal and revival and refreshment. Really? Yep. Listen, revival does not come through reading church growth and marketing books. Churches grow when repentance becomes the norm. Not when we adopt the practices of the business and corporate world. Repentance is simply having a change of mind and meeting God again on His terms. And in the gospel, here are his terms. God says, you have sin, I have grace, let's get together. I mean, isn't that wonderful? That's God's kindness, which Paul says in Romans 2, 4, leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that draws us to repent. So renewal starts with repentance, and repentance starts with Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. Think about that. Renewal, revival, refreshments starts with Jesus. So if we want to see renewal and revival and refreshment here, what do we got to do? I got to read a church marketing book. I got to read, what does the business world do? Vision, mission, core values. If we do those, revival's coming. No. How does revival come? We just turn to Jesus and say, we need you. We're a mess. And he holds us up. And then we have a change of mind and heart. Renewal starts with repentance, and repentance starts with Jesus, a kind and merciful Savior who's pulling for us. He wants us to to have refreshment and renewal. He's not up there just like, ah, okay, we got to meet our quota, Father. Three percent of our churches should experience some kind of renewal, so I guess we'll let them have it. No, he's pulling for us. I think Jesus is triple dog daring you to repent today. He's waiting for you to get real with him. God is saying to you today, I'm ready. I'm willing. You have sin. I have grace. Let's get together. What do you say? Let's do this. I mean, who knew that repentance could be so sweet? Owning up to your sin, coming clean, confessing your sins to God and to others. Selfishness, confessing that doesn't seem like it would be a good thing, does it? But it is because you get Jesus, right? So yes, you've heard me say this before. On the surface, repentance does seem like it would be eating a meal of liver and sauerkraut and drinking prune juice with a lemon for dessert, I mean, who signs up for that meal? No thanks. But that's how many of us view repentance. But repentance is actually comforting. Holding on to your sin, loving it so much, refusing to give it up, refusing to come clean, refusing to admit you've done wrong, that is eating liver and sauerkraut and drinking prune juice and then sucking on a lemon for dessert. That's an awful place to be and you become an awful person to be around what I'm proposing to you today is not heroic 
You don't need a PhD in systematic theology to experience it. It only requires faith and honesty. Honesty about who you are. Honesty about what's really going on in your heart. Honesty about your darling sins. That you're like, well, I've got it in a cage. I mean, it's there. It's okay. It's not hurting anything. I just go to it occasionally. No. Honesty about that. That darling sin that you have in a cage is actually a monster. And the minute you open that door, it's going to eat you up. Being honest about what's in our hearts and then faith in Jesus. And so that means that anybody here can get in on this. Anybody here can experience gospel renewal in their life. I love this about God, but he just makes it so easy for us to come back to him. Whether we grew up in the church and we've run away and we haven't been in years, God makes it easy for us to come back home. Whether, you know, we've been living a godly life, but for the last few weeks just kind of veered off and doing my own thing and I know I shouldn't. God makes it easy for us to come back. You just look to Jesus and you just collapse into his arms. That's it. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no fine print. There's no footnotes, no endnotes. There's no like those commercials where you see for something and then the, all of that fine print that takes up half the screen that you can't even read if you pause it. There's none of that with Jesus. You just look to Jesus, you come on home, and you'll be welcomed with open arms. You just collapse. No energy required whatsoever. Honest confession is where renewal begins. Honesty about what's in our hearts is where spiritual power begins. Paul's letter was not written to make the Corinthian church a safe place for sin. Paul's letter was meant to make the Corinthian church a safe place for confession and repentance. I mean, imagine a church that is known for being a safe place of confession and repentance. What if people knew in our city, I know you can go to that church and you can just come clean and they love you, and they keep pointing you to your Savior. There's no guilt. They don't beat you up. They just say, hey, yeah, you're a mess, but we know someone here who likes people who are a mess. His name is Jesus. Now think about what happened with Corinth and Paul and his friends, the avalanche of good that flowed to all of them as a result of this repentance. There was joy and comfort and zeal and rejoicing and longing and confidence and awe. And the glory of God was restored in that moment. But please get this. Don't seek repentance. Seek Jesus and then repentance will follow. Start with Jesus, not with repentance. Don't think, I need to repent. You just go to your merciful Savior. Start with Jesus, and then conviction and confession will follow, and joy will follow, and awe and wonder of Jesus and his wonderful love for you will follow. Repentance is just collapsing on Jesus. Repentance is what the prodigal son in Luke 15 does. He, he came to his senses, the passage says. Came to his chance, senses, a change of mind. And he returned home. That's repentance. And what awaited the prodigal son at home? Being welcomed home with open arms, being kissed by his father, and 
getting a ring and a royal robe and new shoes. You know, people don't talk about the new shoes that much. You hear people talk about, we got a ring and a robe and a party and a feast. Like, he got some new kicks, man. He got new shoes, too. And he had the father throw him a party. That's repentance. It's a party. It's a celebration. And so repentance is just being hugged by God again. And you have to know this about Jesus. He's a hugger. He hugs you when you return. He doesn't scold you. He doesn't go over a list of your sins. So repentance is simply falling in love with Jesus all over again. Don't you want that today? Maybe you've been running from God like the prodigal son. Come home. Quit running. Come to your senses and see your Savior. He loves you. He welcomes you. He's waiting to throw you a party when you return. What are you waiting for? Listen, Jesus throws the best parties. You have to know that about him too. And he's willing to throw you a party today. So come on home and repent and turn. And you'll find God hugging you and squeezing you. And you have to know that about God too. He's a hugger. Let him hug you today. Just collapse into his arms. I triple dog dare you to. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are so welcoming and kind. When others offend us, Lord, we don't want to welcome them back into our life. Certainly, many times, don't want to welcome them with open arms and hug them. And yet, you do that for us. You are infinitely glorious, majestic, holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, immutable, God-only-wise. And we have offended you with our sin, and yet you welcome us with open arms. We thank you for that. We thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for your kindness. I pray that your kindness right now would draw each one of us back to you and into your arms. Help us today to celebrate for your glory. It's all for your glory, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.